Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hacks. Now I'm really excited by our guest today where we're going to talk many, many things about period drama. So I'll introduce our guests. So we have Julie Taddeo and Catherine Byrne and they're the authors of Rape in Period Drama Television 2022 and the co-editors with James Leggett of the edited collections Conflicting Masculinities, Men in Television Period Drama, which came out in 2018 and Diagnosing History, Medicine in Television Period Drama, which came out last year. Julie is Research Professor of History at the University of Maryland, and Catherine is Lecturer in English at Ulster University. Hello both, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. I'm really excited to dig down into some British period drama with you both today. Um, So we're going to start off, I think, well, just to kind of give our listeners a bit of a sense of how you actually became interested in this field, both, you know, as consumers of period drama and then also as as scholars as well. So I wanted to ask you both, firstly, what are the first period dramas you remember watching? You know, what were your first favourites? But then also what led you to actually go on to, to study period drama as scholars? I think the first one I really enjoyed, and this will, you know, be very familiar to loads of people out there, was, of course, the Pride and Prejudice from the 90s. You know, we're all influenced by that. It was just a classic piece of TV. It's still it's still so watchable today. There's a joke in the recent Barbie movie about how if you're, you know, if you're sad, Barbie, you'll watch that seven times. And that's still so true. You know, when you're when you're a bit low, nothing cheers you up more than seeing Colin Firth emerge from the lake. <laughs> Um, for me, it's much earlier. I'm older than Kate. Uh, it was upstairs, downstairs. So I'm American and we had Masterpiece Theater, which has since rebranded as Masterpiece. And they just showed a small handful of what all of you were having in the UK. And they just showed them over and over again. So I got upstairs, downstairs and the original Poldark. And I just fell in love with it. My sisters nicknamed me Rose because out of the seven daughters. I was the only one who did any house cleaning. <laughs> um, but it was really Poldark. I felt I did fall in love with the, you know, the, the character. I discovered the books, which are absolutely brilliant by Winston Graham. Um, I wrote my high school entrance exam essay on it and got a scholarship. And so Poldark <laughs> me on the path to becoming a historian. That led to my love of British history. And what about UK in terms of actually taking this in in a like a scholarly direction? What kind of led you? Well, I was already writing about Victorian fiction and novels. I'm from a from a kind of literature background, but 
it was really Downton Abbey because I started watching Downton Abbey and suddenly, you know, I know we're going to talk a little more about that show later, but I just felt there was a lot to say. And partly I was loving it and I was enjoying watching it every week. And partly I was getting really kind of frustrated and angry by some of the some of the things it was <laughs> suggesting about people and history and class. Um, and so so I started publishing. That was the first thing I wrote on, uh, on, on period drama was kind of a tirade, I suppose, about Downton Abbey. But I was already a fan. I just hadn't translated that into academia. Sure. Can I just add to that, for, as Kate said, because here Downton Abbey was much bigger than it was in the UK. I mean, America mm. ignored it. And I started getting requests from groups to lecture about Downton Abbey and the real history. And that, for me then, was the turning point as well. Like, oh, okay, we can really start exploring this from a more scholarly angle and use it as public history. So I had the best, the best of both worlds for this. Exactly. And as you say, like the interest that there's been over like the past several years of, you know, of the public, just really having that enthusiasm for learning more about the history behind the period dramas and just really diving into it is something that's just got massive. Um, I must say with, with my, one of my first period dramas, I mean, there will be some people who are a bit like, oh, no. But I think one of my first probably was the 2005 Pride and Prejudice film. Um, I actually didn't see the 90s one um, to my shame until about two years ago. So that was the one I grew up with. So, yeah. So I think that was probably one of the first period dramas I saw. Um, a bit contentious, I'm sure, with um, with some Austin fans. So is that the Kira Knightley one? Yes, yes, yeah, the Kira yeah. Knightley one. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember the animals in the kitchen. That felt really kind of remarkable at the time. You know, the pigs are running around everywhere. <laughs> it's a good film. Yeah, it is a good film. Yeah. Like when I watched the 90s one, I completely got why everyone loves it so much. But I think the film also, the scenery is beautiful and there's some really, really cool Elizabeth, um, Lizzie, Darcy scenes in there as well. But anyway, we will move on from Pride and Prejudice for now. <laughs> oh, no, we're not actually. We're carrying on kind of. <laughs> Because um, we were going to um, talk first about your collection, Conflicting Masculinities, um, because there's a really interesting discussion in there on how the male romantic hero, hero of period drama has changed over time. So I wanted to ask you both, how would you chart these changes since the 1990s Pride and Prejudice, which is obviously kind of a, a big watershed moment? But yeah, the male lead has become more and more objectified, I think, by the female gaze ever since, you know, Darcy emerged wet out of the lake. Um, Julie and I actually initially became friends because she was giving a talk on Poldark and she had a giant picture of Aiden Turner behind her when she was talking. And I thought <laughs> instantly, you know, we were going to get along. Um, but yeah, Julie, isn't it, you know, increasingly they have to be handsome. Um, they have to kind of be the focal point of the narrative. If you don't, if you don't find them, it, it sounds very reductive, but if you don't find the male lead attractive, chances are the show is not going to be a huge success um so this is really a lot about the male or indeed uh, uh homoerotic gaze uh female and homoerotic gaze sorry uh quite a lot of the time but they've changed in other ways as well um particularly an, an increasing emphasis on kind of consent and you know being being kind of kind to the female lead which wasn't always the case um i watched recently again the north and south from i think 2004 and Richard Armitage is very good looking. I adore <laughs> that series. <laughs> it's it's a brilliant, a brilliant uh, series. But um, but he's quite violent, not to mark. But he's he's kind of violent. He's he's aggressive. There's a real edge and rawness to him. And I wonder, have we lost some of that, or have we needed to lose some of that now post Me Too? Um, when the most recent Bridget, for example, 
you know, the romantic lead is kind of constantly aware of his responsibilities, of his gentleness, of his need to kind of request consent. And um, that might be a change that we've, we're noticing over the last few years. Which is so different from the Bridgerton book, because his character is really violent towards yeah. Kate, and she likes it. And I don't think you, uh, hopefully we can't get away with that now in period drama. Um, but also the last Bridgerton, there is the nod to the lake scene when Viscount um, comes emerge, you know, out of, you know, with his really wet shirt, and it's clinging to his muscles in a way that Colin first didn't. And then I think about Poldark, and when I go back and I watch the 1970s, because I think Robin Ellis, you know, he was a sex symbol at the time, and it wasn't social media, but women were chasing him down alleys. He never takes his shirt off in Poldark, and I don't think anyone really in the 70s dramas did, because, you know, I don't know if fans would have even wanted that. Um, so there's definitely that. Um, but I love the way now that all the series, Benedict Cumberbatch did a Vanity Fair shoot, and he's coming out of the lake with a white shirt. So, But back to Richard Armitage, um, when that show came out, there was a competition. Fans were voting on who was sexier, Colin Firth or Richard Armitage. And then since then, he's had his League of Adoring Fans, the Armitage Army. So and it, it, I think this so creates a problem, as Kate has explored elsewhere, too, that when these men were so connected to them, then we end up forgiving all the bad things that their characters do, just because they look so good in that wet shirt. Exactly. And we're going to move on um, to one we've mentioned previous a few moments ago, Downton Abbey, which um, is, of course, one of the most high-profile period dramas of the 21st century. And it and it's so much, so many kind of interesting things to unpack within Downton um, with themes such as gender roles, including during the First World War and disability and class. So I wanted us to move on to Downton for a, for a couple of minutes to kind of talk about your main takeaways from the series, um, but then also kind of your thoughts on how it reflected the time in which it was made. So from 2010 onwards, because um, I know kind of a while after it came out, there was discussion from Julian Fellows, um, who was the originator of Downton um, talking about, I, mean, I think there's some controversial comments about the um, economic crash and Downton reminding people of a time when people knew their place. So it'd be interesting to unpack some of those kind of controversial themes and, and anything else you kind of take away from the series. Yeah, I don't think people wanted to hear that they once knew their place, but coming out of that crash, and as I know in the UK, just like in the US, so many people lost their jobs. The idea that your employer looks after you and cares about you, that was comforting. And just the elegance of the show, uh, I think that was what a lot of people were craving. He also said that other thing where he was tired of, you know, all of the sex, uh, and he wanted to offer an alternative. But I think it's taken, because she wrote about this in, in one of our collections, by season four, even he goes dark, right? The downer, mm-hmm. uh, he becomes a downer. And that's actually, I think, when the show gets better when it's less about the the period details and the elegance, and it's more about getting to really serious issues that both the aristocrats and their servants would have faced in real life. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it does beautifully capture a sense, a time where everything was fine if you were born into the right position. And I think there's a real, that nostalgia and that ability to make people forget their lives and their daily circumstances for an hour every Sunday night, say, um, it's why the show is such a huge success. It, you know, it really can transport you to time where the biggest decision you have to make maybe is what dress to wear to dinner. But at the same time, as Judy says, as, a, as time goes on, it becomes more serious as well. But it still makes, I mean, as I said, it makes me angry because it does have this kind of 
glossy view of the past where actually things were nice and clean and you know you're you're uh you knew what to do when you got up in the morning your life was simple and straightforward and you were respected at work i mean of course for most domestic servants life was really hard mm-hmm. um, and and you did not were not respected by your employer at all so um the struggles of the past if you're not rich like like the Granthams aren't 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 represented fairly in that show at all. And it does put out this worldview, you know, know your place and you'll be rewarded by working hard. And sadly the reality for us all is, you know, you can work as hard as you want. You won't be rewarded or respected necessarily unless you're lucky. So yeah, you can really see his conservative politics coming out in that show. Um and his view of the past is one which most people have embraced because it's very accurate in lots of ways. The period costume is so kind of carefully and perfectly done. So you get a sense of authenticity. This is what the past was really like. And that's kind of dangerous as well, because you, you then think, oh, wasn't it a great place? I wish life was still like that. Whereas for most of us, we wouldn't want to go back 100 years, um, you know, no matter how difficult our present circumstances. And of course, you mentioned yeah. those circumstances being post the banking crash as well. And the problems of financial meltdown in those years, which is when Down became you know, one of the biggest shows in the world because it provides that kind of security. An escapism from reality. Yeah, and I think back. I think sometimes people forget, or if they weren't watching it when it first aired, how huge the show was. Mm. Like it sparked a butlering industry in China. A congressman in my country, he got in trouble because he embezzled campaign funds to decorate his office, like Dowson. And teenagers and people in retirement communities were having dress-up parties. And the first time I gave a talk, some young women, it was great. Like they came in costume to hear my talk. But, you know, I'm still giving talks so many years later on mm. Downton. And now people do want to hear the kind of stuff that Kate is mentioning. They want to know what was it really like to be a servant. They're not put off by talking about race, gay conversion therapy, disability, because those are issues that he raises. Mm. I, you know, as a historian, I was never happy with the kind of bashing that Downton got in the press. Like, I thought Simon Chamos just took it over the top because... The other side of it is that this is a genre that women love. And we have so few things that cater to us on TV. So, you know, the escapism element is okay. And now it's our job as academics to let people know, okay, how can we use this, this story for, you know, for other purposes? You know, we'll tell you the truth, but we'll also investigate some of these really serious issues about class, gender, sex, violence, et cetera. No, exactly. And kind of with us talking about masculinity from Pride and Prejudice onwards. I mean, was there any um, particular masculine depictions that you both found interested in Downton? Because as you said, there's, you know, so many different facets, so many different characters, disability, class. Are there any characters that you you kind of found quite interesting from a, a masculine sense? I, I like the way each man... Sorry, you go first, Kate. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Really sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Um... People are both so nice to each other. <laughs> We're a good team. Every man is flawed in some way, right? Like Lord Grantham, he has no business sense. He has to marry, you know, to save his estate, and then he still almost loses it. Matthew, of course, has his almost Lady Chatterley, Chatterley moment, and he talks mm. about feeling so emasculated, crippled with think because of the war. There's a the the temporary ballot who does have shell shock. Mm. Mr. Bates has a disability and he feels emasculated by it. And the only way he asserts his masculinity is when he tells Anna how dare she even consider birth control because he mistakes her Lady Mary's um Mrs. Stokes device for hers. Uh so all of the characters have some type 
they're not the typical men who come out of lakes and we go, ah, over. And I think that's what's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've been complaining about it being conservative about class issues, but I think it is much more progressive about gender issues. And, you know, the, the women are the central characters in many ways. They're the most important people in the show. We follow their journeys and we see their struggles and we really identify with them. And absolutely, the masculine, all the male characters represent a kind of masculinity in crisis almost. Um, mm. You know, you can see that reflecting the troubles in real life at the time, but like they don't know what their future is going to hold. They don't know what role they're going to play anymore lord grantham in particular who becomes increasingly kind of you know marginalized almost by life as the series progresses he's still a great character but he, he doesn't know his role anymore it's not simple and cut and dried the way you know would have been at the start even in series one where he's clearly the, the patriarch um by the end he's sort of floundering almost and you can see the anxieties about about masculinity and where it's going and uh, kind of channeled through the show and explored there in quite sensitive ways which is is very nice Absolutely. And um, we're going to go on to um, now to one of the kind of serious themes that um, that we've mentioned and are going to talk about because for your most recent book. So we're going to talk about um, representations. So I just I should have said a concept warning at the beginning of the episode, but we're just going to go into um, the author's most recent book, um, which is about rape and sexual violence on period drama television. So just to put a, a content warning there um, that we'll be talking about that for a couple of minutes. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to talk about this because period dramas are often, you know, enjoyed for their kind of so-called fluffier aspects. You know, people enjoy the, the comfort. But as we as we mentioned, they do also look at some very serious issues as well. And this is this is one of them. Um, so I wanted to ask you both about some of the representations that you speak about in the book. And um, one kind of that I couldn't help but think of is the controversial scene in the modern Poldock um, between Ross and Elizabeth. Um, so I wanted to, yeah, dig into some of these representations and then afterwards, how you actually kind of found navigating the process of, of writing a book about such a difficult and troubling topic. Um, I'll go first just because the Poldark scene so Kate and I, and, and even though we had worked together on another book, it was interesting, like she, in her fantastic book, Edwardians on Screen, she had looked at, especially the rape, um, the rape of Anna. So, you know, I'll let her talk about that. And I had been working on the Poldark from the 1970s and that scene because I had discovered these Winston Grand message boards where fans of the books had, were still debating to this day if what happened between Ross and Elizabeth was a rape. And then they that then turned to the TV series from the 70s. So I had written about that. And just as I published it, the new Poldark came out. So and fans who were on kind of on my side, because we are very divided about this, um, said, oh, what are they going to do about that scene? Uh, it's ambiguous enough in the book, although you have to read the books as a whole. There's mm. 12 books in the series. And Ross, Elizabeth, and Demelza all revisit that night over and over again. The night when Ross bashes into Elizabeth's room, tells her she can't marry his enemy, George Warlegan, even though he's married, and she's a desperate widow, and George is offering her wonderful life. And, you know, George isn't as bad as, you know, Ross makes him out to be. He changes over the course of the series as well. But Ross takes what she did not, what did she say? Takes what was not his right to take, she says this later. And when it is depicted on screen in the 70s, there's no smiling, there's no moaning, there's no hand under the skirt where she lifts, raises her neck in a way that says, yeah, I consent. And the next day, in the 2016 version, she's in bed, naked under the sheet and smiling and asking mm -hmm. him, okay, now what? And he can't wait to get out of there. 
In the 70s version, the next day they're shown in bed, still fully dressed uh, with the sheet. And they both, he looks like, what did I do? And she looks angry. And she mm. never forgives him in this series the way that she does in the 2016 adaptation. But if you follow the books through, you will see that that was a rape. And Graham was so ahead of his time because he started the books in the 40s, continued it through the 70s, and then up to 2000 and early 2000 when he died. And he said that he'd been called a feminist, uh, which was unusual for a male his writer at the time. And I do really think that he saw it as a rape, but viewers wanted to make it what they wanted to make it. Mm -hmm. And to turn it into that outdated rape fantasy that no means yes, you know, he just, you know, she ultimately really wanted it. And that's how a lot of fans read it. But if you follow the British uh, press, there were anti-rape activists and feminists who said, no, this is an outdated rape fantasy. And the writers made a big mistake. So it, it, it was pretty troubling. Yeah, it was voted uh, one of the most romantic TV encounters of the year by Radio Times viewers, and wow. that was quite shocking to us, mm. you know, that, that people really recognised it as a, as a romantic moment instead of seeing the very problematic uh, complicity around it. Um, we actually found when researching the book that one of the hardest things was having so many representations of sexual violence in period drama. There was they, almost every show, period show, deals with rape in some way or another. Um, I've been talking already about how these are kind of fluffy escapist shows in theory, but actually, obviously, some of the subject matter is really dark, and that's particularly around repeated representations of rape. So um, it's partly, I think, a very positive thing that it it reminds us that women and, and some men have been subject to terrible crimes throughout history because you know history books kind of gloss over that but actually this was reality for women's lives so Pajama does very important work there and kind of saying yes this happened it, it, it happened a lot and now we have to kind of confront it and deal with it a little bit more but uh but yeah there's these really dark plots in otherwise kind of you know lightweight and enjoyable entertaining shows but there is always a question mark as well of course about whether these plots are being used as entertainment whether they're being used to gather ratings um, the rape of Anna in Downton, which Julie mentioned there, was one such example because it seemed to come out of the blue. It was a very popular character, kind of, you know, central character. And the quite shocking and violent attack on Anna um, did cause up a lot of, con did stir up a lot of controversy, caused a lot, brought a, a lot of headlines. And it seemed to be maybe a bit exploitative of, you know, we need ratings, so we're going to throw a rape into the mix. Having said that, viewers again responded um, to the sympathetic treatment of Anna very strongly, and a lot of people said it was good to see such issues being addressed by primetime TV, no matter how unusual it might be in that show. Yeah, because, you know, a popular show like Downton, and, you know, others have, have shown this as well, that rape calls to rape crisis centers spike when they mm. watch a scene like that on one of their favorite shows, especially if it's a character they identify with. This happened in Australia with a really popular uh, place to call home. I adore that series. We look at that because there's multiple rapes in it. One that's related to the war and the Nazi camps, uh, a backstory. And then it's like a date rape by Carolyn by her really brutal boss. And she, again, she talked about how all her fans contacted her, that they felt heard. And for some, it was the first time that they actually shared with others what had happened to them. So in that sense, these shows really do speak to their viewers. Uh, it's not always about chasing ratings. But then you have a show like Outlander, which I know the rapes are in the book, but that whole point of an adaptation is that you can change things. 
And Outlander does change things when Claire at 50 is raped in the book. <laughs> and the author said, oh, it was kind of like a minor rape. I don't know what that is. But it was just by one person. And they turned it into a gang rape of Claire, who at 50 now is, you know, established as a doctor in her community, making penicillin. And then, you know, these men just come and put her back in her place. And I didn't really understand the point of the brutality of that rape post Me Too. Um, but it was important in terms of representing older women because sexual violence isn't just about, you know, young, pretty women. And we have, and in the United States, especially, this is an ongoing conversation because of our former president and all the charges of sexual assault. And he's like, oh, but they're old. Yeah. Well, they were young, first of all, when he assaulted them. Um, but also, you know, say, oh, look, they're old, they're ugly. Nobody rapes old, ugly women. Um, and, you know, th those kinds of conversations, we just can't really seem to escape them. So in a way that was a, it was a positive rape, like, you know, in Peaky Blinders, when um, Aunt Polly is raped on the desk of the terrible, you know, captain, uh, the inspector, uh, but he was putting her in her place. And she was a woman, you know, who was in her advanced 40s. So those things do have to be shown, but uh, it all depends on how the writers handle Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I think that's a really important point there is that, as you were saying, you know, if having these scenes and I kind of think about soaps as well, when they tackle particular serious storylines, sometimes, you know, they could be praised for doing that and that can kind of resonate with viewers. But um, as you say, yeah, I think it is just that care and rather than just, you know, we're going to kind of throw this storyline out there, like they do need to think about how they're, they're showing this assault. And yeah, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, and um, do we actually need to see the assault at all is another question. because Yeah, very, absolutely. Yeah, because quite often the assault, you know, even though it's a horrific event that's happening, but it, it seems to be eroticized by the camera, partly for the reasons Julie just indicated about it being often a young and beautiful woman um, who's being attacked. So one of the kind of most sensitive rapes actually was in Outlander, and that's when a character called Brie is raped, but it's off screen. So you see the suffering that she goes through afterwards, but you don't have to witness the event. And it's kind of like, you know, we, should, we don't really need to see this to understand the pain and the suffering that's caused by it. And maybe that's a kind of safer and more sensitive way to, to approach these crimes on screen. But most shows can't resist the kind of sensationalism of, of actually showing some part of, a, of the mm. act itself. Yeah. And Kate, when um, she made such an important point, too, that in that scene with, with Rihanna, um, 
the focus is on the people outside in the outer room and they're listening and smirking. And it's really about how rape isn't just a crime involving, you know, maybe, you know, the, the survivor and his or her assailant. It's about everyone who is complicit in some part, um, in some way. And I think they got it right there. And that was immediately post me too. But then they went on to do some other questionable things. But, you know, the end of season one and then how we see it in flashbacks of season two, Jamie's raped by uh, Blackjack uh, Randall. It, you know, they got a lot of positive coverage for addressing male rape. And I think that's so important because male rape and still pop culture can be treated as a joke. Um, but I, I don't really feel that it needed to be as graphic as it was. And there were other male rapes in the series that I think were handled more sensitively. So I'm not, I, I feel like they were kind of chasing ratings with that, with the emphasis on Jamie's body and how it was being brutalized. Mm. It was over the top. Definitely. And our next topic we were going to have a look at on the podcast was um, how medical settings are used in period drama, uh, which you also discussed in Conflicting Masculinities, um, but you also have your book, Diagnosing History, Medicine in Period Drama. So um, I want to take a few minutes to talk about some of the um, medical dramas you found most interesting to study and kind of some of the key trends um, that they've been setting. So I guess we're thinking about Call the Midwife, which is a very popular um, BBC drama, but also any other examples you, you kind of talk about in the book as well. Yeah, hey, my, you're my a chocolate expert. <laughs> I, I wrote about Call the Midwife um, in, in this book, and it, obviously it's a really, really popular, really important show on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, but and it's also been so popular that it's kind of inspired uh, increased applications to midwifery around the UK. You know, numbers of applicants have gone up dramatically for all those courses in midwifery, so it's kind of reclaimed the profession. So it's really good to see that kind of positive championing of what was traditionally, of course it isn't now, but was traditionally women's work uh, at that time. Um, and that show also is important in the context of debates around the NHS because it shows the kind of importance to particularly working class or poor people at that time about the NHS and what it did for them and the service it provided, which is completely essential. Um, and, and that's kind of in the context of nowadays uh, is, is, you know, something we keep talking about and uh, with doctor strikes and that kind of thing happening at the moment is an ongoing narrative um, as well. But my chapter explored some of the the more difficult or controversial aspects of the show, which are not um, immediately apparent, maybe. But, for example, it's championing of natural birth, because for most births in it are very straightforward natural births which took place at home and that was accurate up to a point but it, it does tend to gloss over the fact that you know not every birth went smoothly and that many women you know nowadays and then were not able to give birth naturally the way they do with midwifery help and um I look at that in the context of real kind of very painful debates about midwife services around the UK um and how those have been functioning with a kind of champion of the natural birth movement maybe not always the best outcome for women and their babies in real life um, and the two kind of are in dialogue with each other. Kate also has a really cool uh, chapter on because this is part of her your other work right in Victorian literature syphilis uh, in uh, the Frankenstein Chronicles and that was what we were finding that when we did um, conflicting masculinities a lot of the storylines we're medical in some way. And mm. so, you know, just about every period drama has a medical storyline, even if it's not a medical period drama, like Call the Midwife or The Nick. 
Mercy Street. All of those are in our, our book, Diagnosing Medicine. And we it's international in scope. We've got a chapter from contributors about La Peste, which is about a Spanish drama about the plague. We've got German dramas, Australian dramas. Uh, but, you know, you could take any show, like um, A Place to Call Home, and they have a, a really difficult to watch but important gay conversion therapy storyline. The main character, of course, is a nurse. Downton Abbey has multiple medical storylines mm. because of the war and trauma and civil dying uh, in after giving birth, uh, disability, so contraception, abortion. Every show has a medical storyline. And that's one that we said, okay, let's just do medicine. Uh, and that was the basis of that. And I am really trained for more as a Victorian uh, social and cultural historian. So I focused on Penny Dreadful because even though it's not, you know, a traditional period drama, um, the storylines about creating the perfect woman and controlling her had horrible echoes of clitoridectomies and other types of Victorian psychiatric treatments for women. And then we also thought it was Vanessa Eyes and theories about female mental illness. So I, I really do think that Penny Dreadful is an important series to look at um, if we're critiquing science. And Kate, right, you explored the Frankenstein Chronicles and just every show that we've looked at really has had a medical storyline. And I, I think it's one of the interesting aspects of, the, of, of any period drama because quite a lot of them make you nostalgic for the past. That's part of their charm. But perhaps that's different when it comes to medical and scientific advances because you don't really want to be back there without the benefits that we have today. That's one part uh, of the show that makes you grateful for your more kind of advanced present and for kind of and for what science has provided us with. And so I think that's uh, makes a real change from most of the the moments in the show where you think, oh, it looks beautiful. The countryside was nicer then. People were kinder and friendlier then. But actually, none of us would want to give up the modern hospital and, and, as I said, the NHS and all the things that go with it. And that is what we're working on right now. We're still at this very early stage. We have our contributors. It is a volume on the NHS on TV, just British, obviously British TV. Um, But, you know, that becomes a little problematic given the pandemic and Mm -hmm. all of the cuts to the NHS, people complaining about quality of care, the most recent report about sexual assault, even in the operating room. That mainly, you know, women doctors, surgeons in particular, faced from their male superiors and colleagues. And so I just discovered Breathless. I don't know how I missed it. It came out right uh, when Call the Midwife was successful in its first season. But it only had a one-season run, and it's obvious to see why. The show was so enamored of recreating um, the glamour of doctors in the early 60s, same time period as Call the Midwife. And the nurses are having beauty pageants, parading around the doctors that they lose the interest in the patients. Like, none of the patients matter. And Call the Midwife isn't just about the midwives, the nuns, and Dr. Turner, who I'm writing about, but it is about the patients. And I think that's why people watch. They can really relate to the stories of everyone in that show, young, old, married, desperate women, aging people. That's why that show is slated to run through, what, 2026 at least. And we love things. The fantasy of a midwife might come to your house and, you know, make you a cup of tea as well as look after the baby, you know, stay an hour, sort out your dinner. You know, it's fabulous, the, the services that are provided by by the NHS <laughs> and much. And sadly, uh, we live in a very different world now. Yeah, and Dr. Turner's going to cradle your baby through the night. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we can barely get an appointment with your GP, let alone them looking after your baby for you. Yeah. <laughs> 
And with what you say there about the patient voice, I mean, it kind of strikes me that even in the shows such as Downton Abbey, which don't have a medical focus, like, you know, for example, the second season all about the First World War, you know, no one's really looking at, let's focus on the doctor. Um, is it Dr. Clarkson? It's like, you know, we're finding out about the different patients, whether they're connected with Downton or they're soldiers who have been brought to convalesce at Downton. The focus is very much on them. Um, and I think it's um, Lieutenant Courtney um, has been blinded and he's a patient and it's a very kind of, troubling and moving storyline involving him um so yeah I think kind of as a viewer as well those patient storylines and, and meeting these people is um you know is what's interesting sure yeah the doctor he really is only important because he's a potential love interest for Isabel Crawley <laughs> <laughs> but he gets Matthew's diagnosis wrong oh look a miracle Matthew can walk uh, yes, so that's yes. but that story is really about the women of Downton you know coming into their own uh yeah. and you know learning how to nurse and exactly. uh, even um, Edith, who a lot of fans don't like, and I find her the more compelling character of all the Yeah, sisters. I like Edith. Yeah, you know, she's driving a tractor, and she opens <laughs> up her bedroom to the dying servant. And that, the war is her transformation. The yeah. doctor seems completely useless in that scenario. It's interesting. Definitely. <laughs> it's definitely, yeah, about the about the Downton women and, and their involvement in the hospital much more than him. I completely agree. Mm. Um and we were going to finally um, talk about the um, the welcome diversification that's been in period drama recent years, um, from colour conscious casting to more of a diversity in the stories being told by these dramas as well. So obviously you can't me not mention Bridgerton, which we're going to discuss in a future episode because we just have to have a, a sole focus episode on Bridgerton and Queen Charlotte because there's so much to talk about there. Um, mm -hmm. And then also Mr Malcolm's List was um, a film that I really loved. I thought that was brilliant. Um, and also David Copperfield um, with Dev Patel as well so yeah it'd be interesting to kind of think I mean obviously um, this is something that a lot of people have welcomed and I'm sure you, you feel the same but what kind of story themes would you like period drama to continue exploring in the future or are there, are there kind of certain areas that you think actually you know we're not really including much even at the moment I, I've been impressed by how things have changed um, as I've grown older you know I started watching period dramas as a girl and I had my fantasies of them and now I am a much older woman. I really do appreciate the representations of older women on the screen. And I love how British drama in particular allows women a longer career than American actresses are afforded. Because you're seeing women now playing the matriarchs and the grandmothers who started out as, you know, the young women in 1970s or 80s or 90s period drama. And they don't just have them in the background, um, you know, it's just crone-like figures. They have interesting backstories and characters. So for me, Addressing ageism on TV is so important. I do think that it's so important to cover these stories because, you know, Britain's past was so much more diverse than period dramas, perhaps in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s led us to believe, and our history classes led us to believe. Uh, so I think that's been important. Bridgerton, of course, Beth, you've done such great work on it yourself. So I'm so glad you'll be having that conversation. Um, Santa Tongue, I really think it deserves a shout out. Its first mm. season was more about shocking us with the sex, but the second and third season was about, you know, abolition, sugar boycotts, how this woman feels like an outsider because she is mixed race. So I, I thought that show became brilliant, actually. Um, I want to see more 20, more things set in the second half of the 20th century, not just shows like Call the Midwife, but I think there is Britain, obviously with decolonization became more diverse. There are so many great stories that could be told and just focusing on different neighborhoods uh, of London or outside of London. You know, when Small Island was adapted, 
as a miniseries, that's now just too long ago. That was such a brilliant adaptation. Um, and it's like, why aren't we telling more stories like that? I think uh, the main problem that I still continue to have with period drama, because it has become incredibly diverse and inclusive and it does do really important things, which a lot of other genres of TV don't do. I mean, they're, in some ways, it's much less conservative than, um, you know, than, than, say, detective shows or all those kind of things that we, we normally watch. But I'd like to see alternatives to the marriage plot. And I don't know if this will ever happen because I think we all like watching the marriage plot and the romance and we like them to end up happily ever after. And that hasn't really changed on on these shows and since Pride and Prejudice. Bridgerton still does the same thing. But it is frustrating, particularly, as you know, Beth, in a kind of Bridgerton context, because actually marriage wasn't a great, you know, outcome always for women. They didn't always, mm. uh, you know, get fortunate enough to have someone who's handsome and kind and rich. And great in bed, you know, that wouldn't have happened <laughs> for the majority of women. They had to make choices based on financial pressures. Um, and, and so they wouldn't have the outcome that we see there. So a kind of reminder of that reality, but also a sense that perhaps you could be happy even if you don't, um, marry the gorgeous male lead. You know, maybe there is another alternative out there for women. Um, of course, Bridget hints us at that, but the first two series, at least, and indeed Queen Charlotte, uh, doesn't, doesn't actually follow through on that. I mean, something like, there was a, TV, a film adaptation of it, but I'd love to see I Capture the Castle, um, the Dodie Smith mm. film, uh, book, sorry, ad adapted for small screen because it actually ends with the heroine going, you know, I, I'm not going to get the man that I love, but maybe writing and my career and my future as a writer is going to be enough for me. And that's something we could do with a lot more of. But maybe viewers don't want to see that. They want to see the love affair. Yeah, you never know what viewers want. You know, when things get, they like gritty shows like Peaky Blinders, but when things get too gritty and real, like The Mill about industrialization, that show, okay, second season, it got canceled. Uh, so, you know, you can't get too dark. But I think if you are doing an adaptation of, for instance, the Bridgerton novels, they've already taken so many liberties. Please don't have Eloise marry Philip. He's a bore, you know? <laughs> for a better ending. I do want, just in case anyone from BBC or ITV is going to listen to this, before <laughs> I die, I am begging for uh, a mini series of George Gissing's novel, The Odd Women. I teach this every fall. My students adore it. It's so relevant to their lives today. It deals with, you know, how do you, can you have love and marriage? Um, what happens when there is domestic violence? Um, you know, are there any real new men out there? It's about what happens because there is no contraception. That book is so brilliant and timeless, and I don't understand. And the women are fascinating, and the men are fascinating. We all know a Mr. Barfoot in our lives um, who pretends to be a feminist, and he's not. So I don't get why that has never been turned into uh, a miniseries. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, there is a tendency to revisit some of the same texts over and over, like Dickens, um, where there are actually lots more out there, there which could be reclaimed and provide a great opportunity for future dramas. Absolutely. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, this, this is what we want. Beyond <laughs> women. <laughs> but Elizabeth Gaskell never grows old either. I, I would never stop watching her adaptations, no matter what, no matter how many times they've been done. <laughs> there is talk that there is going to be a new North and South, and I don't know. I am oh, really fast oh, to the, oh, yeah, yeah. the old ones. No, I'm, I'm not sure about that either. Like, yeah, that's become my either. absolute favorite, like, hallmark period drama. So I'm, I'd be a bit concerned, if I'm honest, about that getting the persuasion treatment. I just, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. But other Gaskell, you know, bring it in. Like, we'll have some more. <laughs> mm -hmm.
Oh, we could talk about this for ages, couldn't we? But we've come to the end of our episode time for today. So thank you, um, Kate and Julie, so much for joining us. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, and do remind viewers of where they can um, buy copies of your books. On Amazon, from the publishers, uh, Manchester University Press, Roman and Littlefield. I have my own website at julieannetadio.com. That's N with an E, like the Netflix show. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find all our books there. And I do want to give a shout out. I did. I edited a, a, a special mini issue for the Journal of Popular Television uh, on Bridgerton. And Beth has a really brilliant piece in that. So all of you listeners should take a look at that and appreciate Beth for the great work she does. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yes, do check out um, all of those, everyone. Um, they're such such great books. And um, yeah, the British Head Special Issue's got some um, great historians in there um, as well. So thank you both so much for joining us. And um, yes, we'll love to have you on back soon to talk about all things Bridgerton. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Beth. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result... We have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.